As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. The problem here is this. He is obviously going to get sent off very soon. All the referees will have seen this as they will have seen everything else he's done and they'll think... I'm not going to let him get away with that. And then all of a sudden you lose all the benefit of the doubt. Hello everybody and welcome once again to The View from the Lane, the Tottenham Hotspur podcast from The Athletic. I'm Danny Kelly and I'm joined today, and you'll guess why, I don't know why a draw would drag everybody out, but we've got the full cast is on today. Uh, James Moore, Jack Pitbrook and Charlie Eccleshare as we break down yesterday's instalment of what, what is now getting called the Battle of the Bridge. I'll start with you, James, because I know you're the most excitable about Spurs sometimes. Um, I don't know what to make of this. In fact, I thought Spurs were absolutely useless for an hour. And yet Harry Kane's equaliser had me dancing around the living room and think that's a great result. It's almost the mo- most confused I've been about like how to feel about a Spurs game because we talked quite a lot last week about how much we wanted to see Spurs actually turn up and play well and compete in this game. And there were way- some ways in which they were competitive and did show a competitive edge, and I'm sure we'll come on to that, no doubt. But in terms of the actual kind of technical elements of the football match, like, they're really nowhere to be seen for the most part. I, like you, I assume... Was, I was absolutely livid with House Spurs paper. Apoplectic, yeah. Didn't lay a glove on Chelsea at all. I'd say probably it was worse than any of those performances from January. Probably worse than most of the performances Spurs put in against Chelsea or any other top side in like the 1990s, probably. It was dismal. They were terrible. Officially, um, it's their worst performance since 1879 um, against, there you go, there you against <laughs> old Hawthornians. Yeah, I checked it out, yeah. yeah. But then to come away with a point in the 96th minute is obviously absolutely hilarious. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Because and now here we are. I'm on a podcast I wasn't supposed to be on because it was so funny. And just, just to say, of course, every real football fan, I count all four of us among those, knows that there is nothing, nothing in the world of football. And, and you can take your trophies and all the rest of it. The undeserved away equaliser after 97 yep. minutes is the most important result you can get in football. It's why you keep paying 90 quid to watch terrible football matches. Um, fantastic. I mean, perhaps um, uh, a, a less kind of uh, a more emotional view. Jack, what did you make of the game overall? 
Uh, yeah, I mean, I thought Spurs were really bad for the first hour at least. I went into yeah. it thinking, this is going to be different, you know. This is going to different Spurs, but great time to play Chelsea. I think I said far too much in advance of the game. And then it started. It's like, hold on a second. This is just like every other Chelsea versus Tottenham game in recent history. Like, it's exactly the same. Tottenham are no better. They're getting pulled apart midfield. I thought Chelsea were amazing, to be honest. Um, and... I could. I thought. I mean, it just felt to me like it was going to be yet another defeat and quite an ugly one at points. Charlie, it's funny because, like James says, before the game, my view certainly was we're going to learn so much. You know, either way, I, it felt like we're either going to come out of it saying this is a new Spurs or same old Spurs, and in the end, it was somewhere in between. I mean, I do think the one thing that is significant though that Spurs can take heart from is the fact that now since the start of February they've gone to City and won they've gone to Liverpool and drawn a game they could easily have won and now they've drawn at Chelsea I think had had we not had those excellent performances at City and Liverpool had they got battered in those games and then here they were scraping a draw you might be saying wow they really are still some way off I think viewed as a three that's really really positive and you know they almost earned the right to get a bit of luck you know they had some games last year where maybe they were a little unfortunate the other way but yeah I mean looking at the game as a whole Chelsea were much the better side I just thought they I talked on Thursday about Conte's obsessions with team closing the space against them and that being something he thinks they really struggle with and I think Chelsea did do that really well you saw a few times trying to get the ball into Kane someone like Reese James would just sweep up Nick he was it, fantastic first, and therefore and he was I mean he was for the equalising touch to go in off Reese, who is one of my very very favourite players along with Mitrovic so don't play for Spurs um, was just it just too mm, oh I'm just tasting it now I'm so delicious mm, <laughs> lovely wasn't it his cross uh, not only his goal but oh, his cross murderation. for um, Havertz I mean I did think as well it really I also thought Loftus-Cheek played very well as a kind of um, converted wing-back which felt very reminiscent of some of Conte's converted wing-backs such of, as of years gone by yeah I don't know <laughs> is, there, is there a Chelsea example we can try I can't there? think of one but so you basically had him doing a kind of good uh, makeshift job and then you had James just doing a complete elite job and it did slightly shine a light on the fact that Spurs on the day when Jed Spence wasn't even in the squad uh, are still kind of grappling with that position even though I thought Real did a did a you know had, had a good game I'm not sure and I, I, I mean I hate to say this I don't think anybody in a Spurs shirt had a good game but and I'm, I see people making a case for Benton Kerr but I'm not sure about that let me ask you this then we've talked about the transformation of Tottenham um, and we talked about fitness and we'll get on to that again we've talked about the, the Conte way of playing and all the rest of it was it Jack, that the biggest transformation yesterday was that Spurs beat Chelsea at the Dark Arts. Yeah, definitely. I think that was a big part of it, yeah. Also, the ability to, as Charlie was saying, the ability to like grasp something from a situation where you've been playing badly is not really something we've seen from Tottenham in games like this for a long time. I can't really think of many, many recent equivalents of that. But they, I mean, look, if you want to compare it to, say, the the original battle of Stamford Bridge from 2016, where I thought Spurs probably got a Spurs got the bad end of a two-all draw, having um, you know basically let the kind of dark arts um, yeah. you know get to, they were kind of too into it and forgot to play the game. Yesterday was a kind of reversal of that, wasn't it? Spurs got the better of the two-all draw, and I thought their kind of snidiness and unpleasantness probably worked in their favour. I would say a massive difference since January is in those games where where Spurs were chasing things 
Conte turned to his bench and brought on Brian Hill, who left that month. And Dombele and Lacelso came on in the first game. They left that month. A half-fit Ollie Skip came on in the league game. Whereas in the, on this occasion, Richarlison came on before the hour mark, made a massive difference. Basuma came on and I thought looked a, a step up. And Perisic set up the equalising goal. So, you know, that's where we've, talk, we've debated this about how, you know, and we're still yet to see a full debut from any of those summer signings. So on, on one hand, you could say, you know, all a bit of a slow, underwhelming window, but it meant their bench is so much better and they could make the kind of changes that Conte just couldn't last year when he was chasing games. And um, we, sorry, we will get on later to the, I don't know what that performance by Thomas Tuchel was. Uh, I know what it's about, but I don't know where he thinks he's going to get, get carrying on like that. But afterwards, just one brief thing. When he called out the Spurs players for tactical fouling, to my knowledge, only one player in the game was booked for tactical fouling and he was wearing a blue kit, wasn't he? It was it was uh, Reese James. And we pulled back somebody. So on as he broke clear, yeah. James, did you enjoy did you enjoy the the sight of Spurs being slightly more mal- malicious and maligned than Chelsea? Yeah, I mean I think that was the, the the area of improvement we were expecting to see, really, wasn't it? You know, we we knew that with players like Romero and Ben Tancur in the team, they did have that snidey edge and certainly you know I think that challenge from uh, Ben Tanker on Havertz was it in the build up to the to the first Spurs goal I have seen a replay of that this morning that suggests he did get a touch but I, I know he, he didn't get a touch no he did get a touch and it wasn't a foul I can't tell you we're doing a bit now no no I'm not I'm, this is we think look, that wasn't a foul I open my shirt look deep into my heart that's what I believe Jack is pulling. A, well, I mean, look. What does that mean? Jack, Jack is pulling a face. It was a foul. There's also a little. There's but a bit. I think there's a little nudge before he makes. The they showed. Anyway. They, yeah. They showed yeah. it. They showed it from Anti Taylor's angle. You can see why he didn't give it. Um, we'll yeah, get, yeah, yeah. We'll get on to uh, Taylor A in a few minutes. Yes, Jack. He, he touched the ball. It, you, if, you, if you say it went through his ankle, I thought it was simultaneous. Is that a foul? I think it was a foul. Mm-hmm. It just looked like a foul to me. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but you've got no formal qualifications here, have you, at all? <laughs> no, certainly not. Okay. I think Charlie agrees with me. I think it was, yeah. I mean, he... It's... Unbelievable. Uh, well, what's funny What's funny with it as well is that Benton Kerr's react And, like, where the press book seats are is close to the pitch. You can see it quite closely. His body language suggests after he makes tackle, ah, shit, yeah, it's a free kick. Yeah. Uh, he's, he's fully expecting a free kick. Uh, and I do think players' reactions often are quite... The instinctive, right in the very moment, I think often are quite telling. I agree. I mean, in the end, I, I think if it had gone against Spurs, I'd have been disappointed if it wasn't given. Um, which begs the next question then, uh, James. I mean, the, afterwards, the... The Chelsea people in my in my timeline say on Twitter were doing their nuts about the refereeing. They 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 were saying that Anthony Taylor was Spurs' best player. I mean, I'd, I would say that's probably not entirely unfair given how bad Spurs were. I mean, I don't think even despite coming back twice, not entirely unfair. Say... You've used two negatives there. You should be on Radio <laughs> Four, my friend. What do you think? Well, I mean, look, there was no there was no player in the Spurs team that played well, was there? And Taylor, I would say, certainly made mistakes. On both on both Chelsea goals, so I can see why they would be annoyed. But by the same token, there was a bit of a a stamp would probably be overstating it, but a tread from Cucurella Absolutely on it was, yeah. Romero in the first half. So you know these things do cut both ways. And look, look, we've seen so many games, particularly Spurs Chelsea games, where the refereeing has been atrocious and massive decisions have gone against Chelsea. I think they've had two against Spurs. Fi- oh, sorry, they've gone mm, against Spurs. Yeah. Sorry, yes. Uh, I think there were two fictional goals 
They've scored two goals. They've got two goals that haven't actually crossed the line. They're two up in Quidditch in that case, aren't they? I was going to say, Harry Potter chat from beforehand rears its head. Uh, yeah, two they goals haven't crossed the, the line. Why, should so he, why, why was he at fault with the second goal? The Romero type. The, the, the hair pull. No, but Romero could and should have been sent off there, but it would still be a call at the Spurs. The ball wasn't in but play. Was in pla- no, the ball was in play, surely. I don't think it no, was. No, it was before. I think it we would... Think, it's, oh, it's a continuation. Is it, is it like fouls in, like, into the box from outside? We think the, the hair pulling was starting before the ball was in play, so... It would have been quite funny if he'd been sent off and they just still got to sit at the corner and still scored. Yeah. Um, whether it is a red card offence, I don't fully... I mean, everyone's sort of talking as if it is, but it's such an odd... I mean, there was exactly, that Reggie yeah. Blinker one by Ian Wright, I remember, sort of... Well, but right, it's not like there's much precedent for it. I mean, we'll talk about about, about um, Christian Romero again a little later in what is turning out to be a show only of things that we're going to do a little later. Um, but I, I, while we're on that... I, you know, love into bits and all the rest of it. Don't pull people's hair. It, it, I'm going to use a word that I hope will be all right on the internet. Wanky. It's wanky behaviour, isn't it? I thought worse that. actually was going up to Reese James and sort of cheering in his face after that, after Kane's equaliser nicked. I just, and following on from Maguire, I just think like, I, I love Romero. I think he's great. And a, a lot of the shithousery it's fun, is, yeah. is to be up applauded. To point, but yeah. that's just, that's just really shitty behaviour. It's not, it's not entertaining. Although, although I suspect it contributed to the equaliser. He pulls the hair, the corner gets taken again. If you watch the build-up to the corner being taken, Cucurella is in a complete panic. Whether he's been upset by what, of course he's been upset by what Romero did. You can see his eyes darting left and right. He's pushing and pulling people. I'm not sure Chelsea were mentally recovered from the, from what Romero did for when the corner comes in. And um, Kane gets the flick on and the rest, the rest is history. Yeah, I've got a much bigger issue with the James thing than that. Yeah. I think that's just, that's sort of... Well, that, yeah, that's, that seems to be one of, one, one of his specialities: but... standing over vanquished foes or lying down, mm-hmm. or after, yeah, after the goals. But I mean, the game was riddled with post-goal celebrations that seemed to upset everybody. It's like you're, it's like you're not allowed to score anymore because if it's not Tuchel, it's Conte. If it's not Conte, it's Romero. Everybody's very upset when anyone gets a goal. Why were Spurs so awful in that in that first hour? I guess, looking at it with an untrained eye, the way Loftus-Cheek came inside and Mount came backwards, so that Spurs were often outnumbered four to two in the centre circle, um, meant that they, they just couldn't get near Chelsea. But we've been led to believe that, you know, we were over all of this thing of teams just finding ways to play around us. Why were they so poor? It was a bit of a tactical masterclass from Tuchel, I thought. But Chelsea was so well organised off the ball... Tottenham couldn't really get out. They had Chelsea always had the extra man because they played that kind of back four, back five, flexible system, which which has been a feature of Tuchel's career. Like you say, they were outnumbered in midfield, and then all, the only option they really had in that first hour was just hooking the ball over the top. Uh, for you know that time that Cessignon got in in the first half, that was really all that Tottenham could do because the Chelsea squeezed the pitch so effectively. I don't know how it looked to Charlie from the press box, but on TV, I said I, it looked, Tottenham looked kind of mm. clueless, didn't they? Yeah, they really struggled to get out, and I do, I do think some of you know, there are some players who that close up look really, really good. And Mason Mount was one, and the, and the uh, the movement, the way they were sort of stretching the Spurs defenders, it really looked like they were in control, and they were just snapping. As I said before, they were snapping into those tackles. They were winning the loose balls. And Spurs really did look short of ideas. Some will point to the team selection as well and say, could he have been bolder and chucked in someone like Perisic? But I think everyone off the Southampton game merited 
a place in the starting lineup. Yeah. But yeah, they, they just they couldn't get to grips with Chelsea in the first half. I think every time the ball went to Son or Kane, like on halfway, like Chelsea, like, like Charlie was saying, Chelsea snapped into those tackles straight away. And like, I mean, I mean, Kane and Son barely got a foot on the ball in the first half of the game. Like every single time they had a ball into feet, quite often James or Loftus-Cheek would be like right in behind them straight away. And there's no like space to breathe. They couldn't like turn on the ball. So it was going straight backwards again and invariably Spurs were giving the ball away straight away. I mean, I, I, I would honestly think if you could count the number of times in the first half that Spurs strung more than, let's say, three passes together. None. I'd be amazed if that was a very high number. It was, it was unbelievable how often the ball was coming straight back. I mean, that was, that was a big worry, I think. And that is going to, you know, I, I don't think scoring in the 96th minute should paper over the cracks there because I think if they play like that in a game like that again, they're going to get beaten, surely. I mean, the other thing I would ask you all is uh, we've heard about their super intense pre-season all the rest of it. To me, they didn't look physically. Chelsea were winning the physical battles as well. I'm not saying, you know, Spurs equalised in the 96th minute. So we know they kept going. And in the age of five substitutes, we expect teams to keep going. But they didn't look... Um, it wasn't desire. It just didn't look physically good enough to deal with Chelsea at times. Yeah, the interesting. So Harry Kane's post-match interview with Jeff Shreves, he said that Spurs' biggest issue in that first half was that they were late in their pressing. They always like a second or two late getting to Chelsea players, which is weird because they they looked so in, Tottenham looked so intense for like the first maybe five minutes, ten minutes. Yeah, they were really high up the pitch and they were first to everything. And then I don't know if it was heat or whatever, they weren't able to maintain that and couldn't really put so I assume that was the plan to press that aggressively but as soon as that stopped working they couldn't do it that is a really good because I was thinking the same thing they started off first 10 minutes thinking wow they're really in their faces here it's really interesting as well because everyone's taking different um, approaches to the fitness element and even in this heat you know Spurs have worked extremely hard in the week leading up to it you know what? what's the best approach you know we're all teams are you know this this kind of heat wave is unprecedented I, I do wonder how much of a, an effect that had um, because Chelsea did seem a lot more intense they seemed able to cope with that a lot better their levels certainly in the first half didn't really drop whereas Spurs who we we thought that's where they would um, be so good this season and look it's only the second game there's still plenty mm-hmm. of time for them to do that and they were the ones who scored the stoppage time equaliser so they must have finished the game pretty okay um, but it was slightly surprising just seeing them looking like they were being outrun by another team we've got that's become very unusual under Conte I'm sorry that set something else off in my head just very briefly um, has has Hugo Lloris ever gone up for a corner because surely at that, 97 minutes in we had a succession of corners uh, that's if he's going to do it surely that's the time for the goalkeeper to go fly. I don't remember him ever in the opposition penalty area he didn't go up in the um, Ajax 2019 semi, did he? I can't remember. Just a, don't just, think so, a, just a can, thought. I have an image of him in yellow running like okay. running forward. Maybe that's just running haplessly out of his own goal. You, this is a good one for, I'm sure listeners will correct us yeah. on this, so yeah. please tweet in. Time to shine. Please tweet in. I mean, we've, we, we've got a section here that we've pr- uh, prepared. It was supposed to be love letters to Christian Romero. We've kind of covered it, but I, I want to get a, a summing up from you all whether, you know, the, 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 the old um, football cliche, hello, Adam, um, about you don't want to take that out of his game. Does he overstep the mark with the hair pulling and the screaming? Maybe he just really doesn't like the Mars Volta. Ah, <laughs> very good. Uh, I, yeah, I mean, I think the, the, the problem here is this. He is obviously going to get sent off very soon. 
because he, like, all the referees will have seen this, and as they will have seen everything else he's done over the over the last year and a bit, and they'll think, I'm not going to let him get away with that. And then all of a sudden you lose all the benefit of the doubt. And so I'm sure that, you know, refs will be very keen to send him off, to be honest, uh, at some point soon. Aren't they supposed to judge each incident on its merit? Yeah, of course they do, but they don't. Like, referees have always been guided by representation. But they're humans as well. I mean, we all have yeah. we all have unconscious biases, don't we? What? Are they? Yeah, apparently not, according to Tuchel and Taylor. But I actually think Romero hasn't been sent off in the Premier League for Spurs. I, I've been really surprised by how well he's done to stay just about the right side of the line. And Conte's talked about how he's screamed, you know, had to scream at him a lot. But I, I, I don't have a problem with a lot of it, but I do just think celebrating in someone's face after they've scored an own goal is just really shitty behaviour. Well, the irony of that is that that's the thing you're never going to get sent off. No, it's not. The thing, yeah. the, the thing you hate is the thing that he does that isn't yeah, going to get that, sent that, off. Yeah, that's just really, yeah, that's just really shitty behaviour. They've had two league games so far. I think he could have got sent off for the Romeo tackle on the first game against Saints. He definitely no. could have. Come no on. Way. Do you reckon? Are you serious? Do you not think he could have got sent off for that? No, I don't think so. Do you so. don't think it's a tall reckless? Romeo kind of turned into it, didn't he? I mean, I'm not saying intentionally, but I he's think in, that made it look a lot worse. I think, I think, I think, Victim Romeo, blaming. Sorry, I think Romero ju- jumped into that. No, I don't think he. I don't think he intended. I'm not saying he should have been. Turning, I'm saying he, he could have been. Back into it. If it's any consolation, Jack, I, I took a deep breath after that. I was waiting to see what the referee might do about that. And the next time there's like a marginal decision like that, I think the ref, I think the next referee, whoever that is, will say, "Not today. You're not getting away with this one, mate." And he's going to get three match. I'm not. I don't disagree with that. And also, I can well imagine referees wanting to be the referee that's exactly. Like once yeah, it becomes a thing exactly that he hasn't saying. been sent off yet, I can imagine it becoming a thing for referees that. They want to be the one to send That them. said, and Jack, you'll know this very well from Manchester City, I think when you become a really good player, you often get the benefit of the doubt from referees who kind of think, hmm, but he is really good. So, you know, like Rodri, like Fernandinho, like a lot of these guys, I think there is an element of, yeah, but it's City, they're really good. So maybe it isn't actually that bad a tackle. And I think Romero is becoming so good. He's almost getting to the point where he might get some benefit of the doubt of a like, yeah, but he's just hard and rugged, but he's not, you know, he sort of, he knows what he's doing a little bit. I see what you mean, but I think Rodri and Fernandinho both do it in a kind of cleverer way. I don't think they're as reckless. They've also got that kind of like Mark Van Bommelie thing of just chatting to the referee all the way through the game and managing the game. And Whereas with Romero, I think his fouling is like a little bit more reckless. And I think he's probably hasn't quite got those like relationships with referees that Rodri and Fernandinho have. I think you have to separate those two things out because there's like the full-blooded challenges where I, I think genuine, I mean, like, we can argue a toss over that Romero one, but I think generally he, he will get the ball. Like the one against Leicester last season for the Son goal. Yeah at Tottenham Hotspur Stadium where he went into like an absolutely monstrous mm. challenge on... Soyuncu, I think it was, weirdly. Soyuncu, yeah, you're right. What Won the ball. Everyone in the stadium was like, bloody hell, what was that? It was like, you know, two massive 18-wheelers crashing into each other. Uh, but he came over the ball and it wasn't a foul. I, I, and I, But you have to separate that from putting a bloke's hair at a set piece because I just think that I, despite what Danny says, and I... And I I'm not convinced that you're right about that, Danny. I don't think it did make a difference to the to the to the goal. Mm-hmm. I think I, I just think there's no benefit of doing stuff like that. That's the kind of thing that you can remove from your game. Oh, and oh no, absolutely. I think he but did. Stuff I think he did play, make a difference when the ball is. But, but, but I still wouldn't want him to do it because a marginal gain for a possible red card is nonsense, isn't it? 
And then if he misses three games, yep. yeah. And then does it again later in the season and misses five games. Yeah. Well, I do think to Jack's point about the slyness, I think he is more sly than people give him credit for. Because as well as those sort of blockbuster big tackles, I do think he is clever at doing things that because there's such an art as a defender to doing and like Rodri like Fernandinho to doing just not doing quite enough for it to be either a foul or a yellow or a red and I think he does that very well often he'll sort of he'll kind of leave bits in here and there and, and it's enough to really intimidate opposition players without it being enough in isolation to get punished and actually I think what Spurs what they benefited from yesterday is there were quite a few Little offences, the Bentoncourt uh, tackle, the Romero hair pull, even the Richarlison offside, none of which were so egregious they were pulled up. Um, and I think there is, less so an offside, but there is an art to making tackles like Romero does that are just about okay, even when he's clearly leaving one in. Yeah, so Jamie Carragher compared him on on comms to Ricardo Carvalho. That's a really interesting think, comparison. Uh, Carvalho was on, great on. at that. Exactly, yeah, on the basis that he's so talented, so good on the ball, also very, very aggressive in his defending and also very, you know, kind of dark artsy as well. Um, so I do think there's a lot of that. Even the, the Cucurella stamp on Romero is the kind of thing that Romero himself would not be averse to doing, the kind of thing that doesn't really get pulled. You know, often you'll get away with as a player, but, you know, it's... Fairly obvious what's happening. Carvalho is a, a good example. Stamp, isn't it? That's the point. A tray is a, is a good example of what I was saying there as well of being someone who refs kind of assume is just really good. So yeah, we'll sort of let him get away with it. Well, I'm, I mean, the, 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 the comparison with Rodri and Fernandinho is good, but it has also got one slight flaw, doesn't it? In that in midfield, you can do these things, and the generally the effect of getting them slightly wrong is not as calamitous as when you're doing them on the edge of your own penalty area whether you're giving away the free kick where you're giving the referee an opportunity to give a penalty or uh, whatever it is I just think I want him to be himself this I think, this is why I would have made a terrible parent I want him to be himself but not quite as much of himself if you know what I mean <laughs> yeah um, something like that we talked about Christian Romero and his various battles we talked about Spurs and Chelsea going at it for what's been described as Battle of the Bridge 2. It's a very poor follow-up, if you consider how good the original Battle of the Bridge was, which takes us on to the main event, ladies and gentlemen, of On Your Card tonight, Conte and Tuchel. I'll start with you, James, if I may. What the hell was going on with those two? What is that? <laughs> I mean, I couldn't believe that there doesn't seem to be any kind of like long-standing beef there. Like, they never managed against one another before last season and I, I'm from memory and I mean again Charlie and Jack were at the game so they, they might correct me I, I don't remember there being any kind of major flashpoints in those matches they were so they kind of one-sided enough, yeah. that they were never yeah exactly yeah there was never really a moment where it felt like it got that fractious uh, that, that celebration from Conte we know you know we, we mentioned before the possibility of there being that Ben Tanker foul in the build-up to mm -hmm. the Hoiberg goal but I, I, to me that didn't feel like enough for like, like a Tuchel to be so enraged by Conte's celebration. And it seemed, and I, I hope this isn't me just defending the Tottenham manager, but it did seem like he was kind of more making a beeline for where the players are celebrating or where the Spurs fans were rather than goading the, the Chelsea bench. I mean, Charlie, I'm, I'm guessing, you know, at Stanford Bridge, the, the press box is right behind. So that must have been right in front of you. Well, what was your kind of view of that, the first one after the Hoiberg goal? Well, Tuchel was spoiling for a fight at that point. He was so, so annoyed at the, 
at the refereeing decision and everything. And, and you could see it simmering throughout the game because Tuchel, he's very demonstrative, more so even than Conte on the touchline. He's, you know, yeah. he's gesticulating, he's screaming at himself and at the players and in frustration. And I just think he he was so tightly wound at that point. It wasn't going to take much. And you know what it's like, conceding a goal when you think... Also, because you're almost... You've got enough time to build it up in your head. You're thinking, if we concede here, I swear to God, Absolutely. I am going to be so effing annoyed. And so you could just feel that around the ground. Because there's a long period. It must be a minute or so from the time Bentico makes the tackle. So I think he's just getting more and more annoyed thinking that if they score and then they do... And he turns and he sees Conte celebrating, even though, yeah, my sense wasn't that Conte was, you know, doing a Romero on uh, James or anything like that. But I think anything would have tipped him over the edge there. And so he just needs to let out his frustration. And I think that's what happens on the first goal. Chelsea then take the lead again and Tuchel decides this time. And I, I thought it was, you know, fantastic, wild celebrating or... Um, tremendously provocative. He runs straight past Antonio Conte, who's a force to avert his eyes like a, Vic, a Victorian maiden um, seeing, <laughs> seeing somebody taking their shirt off at the seaside. Um, it was just nuts, the whole thing. Having been booked, I, I, I mean, I, I don't think... Here we go, the lawyer. I, I, look, the lawyer speaks. <laughs> I know that this would never happen, but having been booked for that fracas with Conte, then legged it down to the corner flag. He didn't take his shirt off. But uh, he's left, his technical, area. He's left his technical area. And that, that, my friend, is one like of he, the things... He, that wants a game, he, he wants a game... By the letter to, of the law, he should have gone. Right. He wants and, it done by the book, right? He said and, himself. And he should have been on for the handshake. James, you need to get one of your vast army of minions because I'm telling you now that this was such a high-profile game so early in the season and so much of it revolved around the designation of the technical areas. I guarantee you someone at the FA now is thinking, all the Premier League... Do we have to put picket fences around <laughs> around their technical areas and allow the players in and out of gates? You're all laughing, laughing like jackasses, uh, but you'll find this is exactly what's going to happen. Glass screens. Something will happen to make physical designation of the technical areas because, um, because you know, at the end of the game, it all went again. Now... I don't know how close were you, Charlie, to the to the to, to the technical areas and the tunnel at the end. Very, a few it's right there. back. What yeah. happened at the end with this 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 handshake where everyone takes exception to everything, as the way I, I'd report it? I think my my sense of it was that Conte walked over. He was going to shake his hand, but he was doing it in a way of like. I really don't like you. You know when you meet someone, you're like, I yeah, don't yeah. like you. I'm not going to look you in the eye. I'm going to do it because I have to do it, but I'd really the rather looking not. in the eye thing is the big this in, weekend, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, exactly. I mean, it was kind of like Mark Hughes, who was always the king of the sort of handshake controversy. But, you know, again, <laughs> when someone's tightly wound up and they take huge exception, you know, I think it was like his honour had been questioned. I saw as well someone on Twitter, I've no idea if this is true, but in Germany, apparently, culturally, it is quite disrespectful not to look at someone when you shake their hand. I don't know if that's true. Anyway, he was clearly annoyed by that. And again, I think spo slightly spoiling for a fight because conceding a stoppage time, he, as you said, scoring one when you've played badly is amongst the best things. Conceding one where you feel you should win is is about the most annoying thing that can happen. I, like when I start a football match, I will think about best and worst case scenarios. And I often think that's likely to be the worst. So he's just clearly really frustrated. And then, you know, he sort of yanks Conte's hand. Conte stands up to him. But, you know, I think every Spurs fan loved how much Conte was standing up to him against a team who had pushed them around in such a pathetic way only seven months ago. Yes, he, Conte invented the English word aggressivity. 
He in the did. press conference. Like when, when I see aggressivity, I respond with aggressivity, and I'm definitely putting that in my in my vocabulary from now on into my. That could replace fighting fire with fire. It's a sort of cliche. <laughs> and yeah, um, Jack. I did predict beforehand that we would see. If Spurs won, I thought we would see uh, unprecedented levels of gracelessness <laughs> on the touchlines from, from Conte. Uh, I, I, what was interesting about it was seeing this in the event of a draw rather than a way win. Was Cutting, what, um, but yeah, was, I just thought it was really was funny. Was Conte gracious? I don't think he necessarily. Yeah. Well, I mean, don't you think the, the kind of no look handshake? Don't you think? That, have you seen I mean, that? Maybe in like Tush, every maybe, other Premier maybe League Tuchel was worse. You in every, maybe, maybe. maybe he was worse. Are you serious? But the point maybe. Sorry, the point here is that we did get the comedy touchline. Yeah, sure. Which is what I was hoping. Look, I know all all you really want is for someone to say, well done, Jack, you were right. Damn right. Exactly right, James. That is is all I want. We haven't even mentioned that. What about a round of applause for Jack then? He was right about one thing. And I think, why why do you think Charlie always mentions when he gets predictions right on the podcast? Because he wants a validation. That's what this whole game is. I'm exactly the same. But my point is, we've been very critical of some of Conte's touchline antics on this podcast. So I think we're actually in a good position to stay in this instance I don't think he did too much wrong yeah. I do actually agree I do broadly agree with that I think if there was any I mean if we were talking about gracelessness legging it down the pitch which is fine I've got no real issue with that but I think that's probably if if I'd been told before there was going to be touchline gracelessness that's more what I'd imagine and it's that, it's darting that, towards the away fans it's that Charlie that led to what I think is the first real piece of managerial social media shithousing that I can ever remember. <laughs> Antonio Conte then goes on Instagram, is it? Um, takes and, to Instagram, Instagram stories. Yeah, he takes to Instagram, that's right, to slam his opponent. Um, and he's put out a picture of Tuchel running past him and saying, you're lucky I didn't trip you up, geezer. Uh, I mean, what's, but what I would say uh, is that, that necessary? I think, he, I think he has said that with love, basically. Well, there are three crying with laughter I, emojis underneath. Yeah, I think I think what's really, really telling about yesterday is the fact, if you remember after the North London derby at the end of last season, where Conte went into the press conference and hammered Mikel Arteta. Now, yesterday, he had so many opportunities to slag off Thomas Tuchel and didn't take any of them at all and has just basically done this kind of fairly funny, light-hearted Instagram post. And to me, that suggests that actually he doesn't really have an issue with him and probably quite likes and respects him. Because if he'd, want, if he'd wanted to kill him in the press conference, he could have done. Yeah, but there were two press conferences, both Tuchel's and um, uh, Antonio Conte's. They were both charm offences for the benefit of the FA, weren't they? To say, we don't need a three-match ban for this. It's just two, two old boys having a go on the pitch. Don't worry about it. Tuchel. Tuchel's wasn't he spent the whole time having a go at the referee and that's different I don't know but not about Antonio Conte he said that was not important sure he's, I suspect he's gonna, something else I suspect he's going to get a too much ban for what he said about Antonio Anthony, Anthony Taylor didn't he say that everybody in the stadium and everybody in the Chelsea dressing room don't want him anymore isn't there a petition he said he, said he, he, do, he, said he doesn't want them he doesn't want Taylor refereeing their matches anymore which is pretty extraordinary but there is precedent Danny do you remember after um, Guardiola talked about when Spurs won at City, Guardiola and others talked about how Spurs had played a perfect counter-attacking game. And then he took to Instagram again and put on a thing saying counter-attack, crying with laughter emoji again. So not the first time. Well, I mean, it's a new... I I want the other managers to get involved with him now. I want to see this on Twitter and Instagram. TikTok particularly, Just I want to see... tweeting and I want to see aggressive dancing on TikTok by football managers where you obviously know it's an impression of the other manager and their antics on the touchline. Um, we should... Round up, um, well, well, let's be fair, Spurs played badly, got a great result at a place where they generally don't get anything. 
Um, so it's been a joyous sort of uh, first half of the podcast. Um, and you mentioned, uh, I think, which I think it was you, one of Charlie. I don't know because they're so they're so desperate to get the praise. I don't know. One of you mentioned um, about the subs bench, <laughs> and hats off to Richarlison who came on and without doing anything obvious other than running around, being energetic, he was the part of the improvement that changed the game for Spurs. Yeah, completely. Like it's it makes such a difference for Spurs to have have someone off the bench who can come on who offers pace and physicality and a threat in behind. Like there's Spurs haven't really had an option like that for ages. I mean, I know like, Lucas is quick, but he, he's not. He, he doesn't. Re- I don't think he's quite as powerful as Richarlison. Um, so yeah, it just made all it made a huge difference having having that extra physical threat. It was so good. And a bit, a bit like our friend Romero, he likes it. And there was that moment, I think, after the Spurs' first equaliser, where Chelsea's right-sided defender went to clear the ball down the line, and Richarlison ran 30 yards to make a defensive block. And you could hear the, the Spurs supporters in the stadium absolutely erupt because they had seen so little of that in the previous hour. He was very good. Yeah, I cited that in, the, in my piece, actually, that tackle. I do think that made a big difference. Just, you know, giving them something to cheer about. And that, and this is why, you know, to naysayers like James, I've been saying the transfer window has been quite good because it's given them options off the bench. Not, not content with wanting to be praised now and validated when they're right. They want to slaughter you when they see you as even vaguely wrong, James. It's unprofessional, actually, as much as anything else. Uh, is James not happy with the transfer window? We oh, didn't even listen to this podcast. <laughs> listen to the podcast. You missed the one where he said, I just don't understand why you're all getting on your high horse about his transfer window. James was slating the entire fan base. <laughs> Come on. Well, we'll see. Look, if any of these players get into the starting 11, then I'll, then I'll change my tune. But All right, let's, let's, take, let's take a, a, a quick break here in which I, in my mind, we're running the length of the internet past Chelsea podcasts, uh, but not in a provocative way and with love. Um, and when we come back, we'll talk about some of the other things that have been going on, including um, seeing sort of the back, uh, if that's the right word, it's not fair, seeing the departure of one or two players who have uh, been not so, so successful at Spurs and been a problem. You're listening to The View from the Lane with me, Danny Kelly, Jack Pitbrook, James Moore and Charlie Eccleshare. Back in a minute. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. 
This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. If you're into your tactics and football analytics and you're looking for a deeper understanding of the game, you can join me, Ali Maxwell, along with Michael Cox and the rest of the Athletics data team for our Football Tactics podcast. Find new episodes every week on Apple, Spotify and all the usual places. Yeah, welcome back to The View from the Lane, where we're still uh, mopping our brow off that late, late equaliser by Harry Kane. Let's move on to one or two other issues. As I say, we, it's Jack Pitbrook, Charlie Eccleshare, and James Moore, along with me, Danny Kelly, because we got the whole firm out following a draw at Chelsea. That's how excitable we were about it. Okay, um, it's a, it's now been, a, it's kind of, a, it is official that Giovanni Lo Celso is off for another year's loan. Um in Spain, and uh, which got us talking. And I think there's going to be a piece in The Athletic about it. Who has been the bigger... I, I say the word flop is really um, a hard thing to say about footballers, but Spurs paid a lot of money for Giovanni Lo Celso and Tanguy and Dombele. So which one of them has been the least successful? The bigger flop, I'm going to use the word. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you what, I'll, I'll start with Charlie and Jack, because I know they've got um, very strong views on this, and then I'll leave James to uh, to be the decider. Jack, what, who do you think has been the bigger flop of these two players? So, I think that Lacelso has been a bigger flop on the simple basis that I think Ndombele performed better for Spurs than Lacelso. Now, I know, I'm sure Charlie will say that Ndombele is more talented than Lacelso and also costs a lot more money. Ndombele cost a huge amount of money for Tottenham, um, which is true, he did. But Lace- I just think Ndombele was actually pretty good under Mourinho and pretty consistent and actually played okay at points under Nuno and even even once or twice under Conte. Whereas I think with Lo Celso, we just, we, he only really played well for about 10 games, if we're honest, in uh, the sort of winter of the 2019-20 season under Jose, just before COVID. And hasn't really done anything for the last two years. So for that reason, I'd say that Ndombele's body of work as a Tottenham player is better than Lo Celso's. And therefore, Lascelles is a bigger flop. We thank you for that exposition, <laughs> Charlie. It's it's tricky with this because it depends how much you divorce expectations from what happens. I think the fact that Ndombélé, you can't. Yeah, he came in with such high expectations. I mean, Jack, we've referred to before your piece when Ndombélé joined, which I think reflected the mood at the time. It was. You know, this guy is going to be a transformative signing. That really was the mood. You know, he came at Spurs shattered. Uh, their sort of normal transfer policy it came at the end Jack and Clark the wage structure and wage structure of that sort of transfer drought and just because of how good he could be uh, versus how he often was and how it ended that's why I think it's him and I think and Lacelso, yeah it was a brief period but from sort of January to March 2020 he was superb Lacelso, and I got you know carried away and led astray in the way Jack did with Ndombele I, I really thought Lacelso at that point had hit his stride and who knows what would have happened had COVID not intervened because he really was in, in great form even though it didn't last very long but yeah so I for me and it's interesting because the, the voting I put this out on Twitter and we got oh, nearly wow. seven, nearly 17,000 votes wow um, 
And Ndombele got 75.9%, which I think, it, I don't think it's that clear cut. I mean, that suggests it's, uh, you know, that's a landslide. Um, but yeah, for me, I just think Ndombele slightly edges it given how high expectations were. And then periods where he, even when fit, you know, he wasn't even in, getting in match day squads for quite a lot of his time at Tottenham. Under all three of his managers, all three, of, all four, if you include Mason, he wasn't even getting in squads in a way that I don't think Lascelles was ever that far away from the team until the very end. So while Charlie is right that expectations were higher for the arrival of Ndombele than Lascelles, like that is completely true. I think Lascelles will probably go on to be better in the next, let's say, five years than Ndombele. You know, he already has be, done. He's gonna be, on, I mean, on loan last yeah, season. Yeah, he's going to be. Yeah, better last season on loan. He's going to the World Cup. I mean, he could actually—he's a really important player for Argentina. He could have a really That's good. That's my World fear. Cup. I, I, I and you know. So the better that the better that Lo Celso gets over the next few years for Argentina and for club level, whether he stays at Villarreal, goes somewhere else in Spain, whatever. Then I think at that point people start saying, "Oh, it was really disappointing in Tottenham, wasn't it?" Like his, mm. you know, the expectations will kind of change in retrospect given how well he will do. Whereas I wouldn't be surprised if Ndombele keeps kind of jumping around different teams a year here, a year there in the next few years. At which point his performance at Tottenham will actually look kind of better in, in hindsight than they did at the time. But that could be framed the other way of saying, "Oh, but Lascelles actually was he a flop or was he just sort of..." misused and was he more of a victim whereas I think if you're talking about a player costing that much who then can never even you know really become a regular player elsewhere then does that make him even more of a flop because you think god we signed someone who was just so patently unsuited to yeah I think it's impossible for me to argue for the amount of money that Tottenham spent on Ndombele but equally it, it kind of depends how much how much you factor that into your decision on this. James, can James cut, right. cut through this chumminess and uh, nebulousness. Which one is a bigger flop? I don't know if this answers the question necessarily, but I, I understand what Ndombele was meant to be and I understand why it didn't work. And I don't think I can say either of those two things about the Celso. Like, like the, you know, Charlie mentioned that spell in March... February, March 2020, just pre-COVID, where we were getting very excited about the Celso. But he, <laughs> he scored a great goal in the FA Cup against Middlesbrough. Yeah, that run um, against Southampton. But like he would, that, I would say he was very much the best of a bad bunch in that, in that moment. I, I wouldn't say it was a high bar for him to be Spurs' best or most important player in that team without Son and Kane. Um, and as Jack says, and, and Dombele, I think, has just had more moments like more, more, more things that have got got me off my sofa watching games in poxy lockdown. So like a Sheffield United mm. goal and whatever else. Even up to that free ball against Liverpool last season. So I would say, despite thinking Ndombele had a higher ceiling and it being more frustrating that he has underperformed against expectations, Lacelso has pissed me off so much that he, it has yeah. to be him. I can't, I can't explain that. that. The, there are no tangibles no, 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 there. No, no, it's just him. It's a feeling. It's sometimes a feeling. And, and, that's, and that's, all, the vibes that's all I asked for. I do agree. I think James is right that, like, it's... I still wonder what... Like, I know I know what Dombele's best job, best role is in the team. I do wonder with, with La Celso, like, even when they signed, there was this thing, like, is he a six? Is he a ten? Is he an eight? They played him out wide. Like, I still even... I keep playing it 
He played as a 10, I think, for BRL last year really well. Maybe that is the best position for him. I don't actually know what his best position is. I know he's a really good player. You can tell just by watching him that he's really good. There's tons of stuff that he can do well. But I'm not 100% convinced I know where he best fits into a system. And not everybody fits into the Premier League. It's a very specific football league, isn't it? And maybe uh, Giovanni the Celso will do better elsewhere. My, my, my feeling, of course, is always that, you know, you, you, the, the first thing, when I first came onto this podcast a year ago, the first of the millions of things that you lot have taught me was that big clubs have to sometimes let go of talented players. It's just the way of it. And both of the, in, in this case, it's not just like cutting your losses. They're not working out. So move them on if, if you can. And of course, you, you run with that the, the risk of, you know, Ndombele being absolutely brilliant somewhere, more of a risk, and I think it was alluded to there, is that Lo Celso is liable to be somewhere near the, the latter stages of the World Cup. And I just wonder if we see him prancing around um, the, the pitch in Qatar with the World Cup in his hand, we'll go, we'll be swallowing something hard and jagged uh, at the site. He could score a winning goal in the final. If Mario Gerz, if Mario Gerz oh. can do it, Lo can do it. Oh, totally. Would Romero celebrate in Kane's face? <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, uh, unfortunately, because of the... Because of the um, the, 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 the likelihood of England and France meeting in the quarter-final. Otherwise, I think we, we were going to have... Um, uh, it, it was easy to argue that you'd have French players, English players, Argentinian players, and I think I had another team worked out as Spurs that could go deep into the tournament. We'll let the World Cup deal with itself for now. Um, we have started to run out of time. Um, just let me just tell you as well that so we should celebrate the fact that Harry Kane scored an important goal in... Um, August, setting up a whole series of records for him. He's now uh, equaled Sergio Aguero's goals. They're both joint fourth in the all-time Premier League list. He now joins Aguero as the most goals scored for one team in the Premier League. He's one away from topping Henri's, uh, Thierry Henry's 43 goals in London derbies. I mean, I suspect he's going to run up something like 60 in that. And I think, uh, Jack, that you've been starting to pull again at the thread of Spurs offering him a new contract. Yeah, so we published a story yesterday yesterday morning just looking at what a huge transformation the last year has been. So today, Monday, it was one year on since Nuno Spurs beat City for a game that Kane wasn't physically ready to play yet, having only had a few two days of training beforehand. And if, if that was the kind of low point of his Tottenham career in relationship with the clubs, relationship with the fans... Then now, I think he, he's kind of recovered so much since Conte's come in that things are kind of looking up again in terms of that relationship. Obviously, he's got two years left in his deal, hasn't signed anything yet. The, the feeling from Tottenham is that I think there's more confidence now that a deal could be agreed, although I don't think there's anything anything solid in, in place yet. I'm sure that from Kane's point of view, he'd probably just wait and see, not let, not least wait and see what happens with Conte. Because yeah. I'm sure the he... two things seem to be linked still, don't they? Yeah, Conte's got one year left, Kane's got two year left. So I don't really see what incentive Kane would have to put in pen to paper and anything now. But, you know, let's see where we are at the end of the year. Okay, listen, thank you all very, very much indeed. Um, I, I wonder whether we shouldn't have been more blowing of trumpets and things, but let's be fair, it was a draw at Chelsea. Although... Um, as we pointed out after the Southampton game, um, that's four points now that they picked up against what they got last year in these in these matches. So that's pretty pretty good. 
Um, we're back on Thursday where we'll be previewing um, the Wolverhampton Wanderers game and getting into other issues as well. Um, and in case you're not already an, an Athletic subscriber, uh, I need you to remember that you can sign up to read all of the Brilliant Spurs coverage, some of which we just alluded to uh, this season, as well as everything else on the site. Just go to theathletic.com forward slash Spurs pod and sign up right now for just £1 a month for six months. That's theathletic.com forward slash Spurs pod. Uh, thank you very much for listening. And when you've read the articles um, for just a pound a month for six months, you'll be able to then go on Twitter and congratulate both Jack and Charlie on being right about many, many things all <laughs> the time. They really, they really love that. Uh, thank you again for listening. Back on Thursday. Don't miss that. The Athletic. <laughs>